This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us for Episode 61 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. In this episode of the Recorded Future podcast, we examine how threat intelligence applies to a variety of roles within an organization and how security professionals can integrate it to empower their team to operate with greater speed and efficiency. How does threat intelligence apply to SOCs, to incident response or vulnerability management? And how do corporate leaders make the case that threat intelligence is a worthwhile investment? Joining us to address these questions is Chris Pace, technology advocate at Recorded Future. Stay with us. Those of us in in security and information security, um, I think there are some misunderstandings about, first of all, what threat intelligence actually is, um, and also about you know the ability to be able to use it as part of security operations or or in a wider information security strategy. And a couple of those would be first of all that it's you know prohibitively expensive. Um, second of all that it doesn't give you the kind of you know the kind of fidelity you need, the sort of detail that you need to really be able to use it to make decisions. And then because of that, it's time consuming. And, and then per, perhaps the the, the biggest uh, misconception is that it's going to be somehow um, you know invasive or time consuming to implement or you know is going to suck a, suck up a load of your 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 resource and your investment um, and really the, the idea of this report is to outline and none of those things is necessarily true and to give some really clear indications of you know where organizations can start to use threat intelligence you know right now immediately they can start to see gains in you know in particular roles in security let's back up a little bit and clarify that definition how do you define threat intelligence so I think we're we're in a, a place within the industry where there are already confusing terminologies around um, you know what threat intelligence is and is and isn't. Um, that's why we've tried to be as explicit as possible, you know, in in the report and outline you know that threat intelligence isn't just uh, you know isn't just a data feed. It isn't just a uh, you know a, a stream of of data um, that's open you know it's open source and although they're easy to d- digest and and they have the potential to bring an extra layer to security operations, there are inherent challenges in using those feeds that that mean they're not intelligence really the most important of those is that they don't have any kind of context you know feed is just a a load of non-prioritized binary information so while there's some value in there some indications of what's bad and and what's good actually in order to add context to those to really make them intelligence for the security professional actually can end up consuming a lot of their time and energy and then we're back to the situation where we already are which is where we have alerts that don't get actioned and triaged and then get missed and then you know they they open the, the the risk then of breach So let's go through the report together. One of the segments uh, highlights uh, threat intelligence for security operations centers. What is the information you want to emphasize there? So we already know that you know those who 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 work in in the SOC, those analysts, they're some of the busiest security professionals there are, and that's largely to do with alerts. So although the the original idea of the SIM was to streamline you know the process for security operations, sort of identifying stuff that might be uh, anomalous or risky, and then being able to action that, actually we've ended up in a place where alerts from those systems are now piling up, they're demanding their attention, and actually in lots of cases 
is it's not really possible for them to process alerts as quickly as they appear. And then when they actually get into the process of investigating these alerts, analysts then face the challenge of internal data that they that they can't necessarily interpret in isolation. So they, they might be then manually searching across a whole variety of threat data sources looking for, you know, insights that are relevant to those particular alerts. Um, there's also a risk that while an alert might appear important at the beginning, it then really turns into nothing and they wasted a whole ton of time trying to find out what that thing was. So really anything that helps these guys to work faster and more efficiently and actually most importantly with more confidence um you know is a, is a is a massive advantage and i think we you know certainly we would say this is one of the areas in which you know threat intelligence has an opportunity to make a, a huge a transformational impact um you know within security operations and maybe that's not happening right now because there's a misunderstanding about what you know what this kind of intelligence really uh, really is uh, so really it's all about using intelligence using real contextualized intelligence to be able to combat that alert fatigue and to enable them to enrich that information that they're seeing internally with useful external intelligence that can help them make a truly risk-based decision that's the ultimate end goal when people are resistant to this what are their what are their fears what do you have to overcome uh, and are those fears justified Certainly the biggest fear will be we're just adding another stream of data and we already have guys who are struggling to you know, deal with the alerts that they're seeing. They're struggling to investigate these alerts in an effective way. And actually, you know, are you really telling me that adding another stream of data is going to help to solve that problem? And our answer to that would be no. <laughs> so I would say if they, if they view threat intelligence as a, another stream of data, then yes, they have a legitimate concern. But if they b can begin to see threat intelligence, um, first of all, as contextualized, so that means you know, relevant to their organization, um, consumable by either the systems that they use or by the analysts that need to use it. I think their view on that will probably will probably change. Um, and then the other important thing is that is that the the consumable nature of the intelligence means that they can work with it quickly. So they should be able to see at a glance, you know, is is the information that I'm seeing here relevant? Can I make a decision based on risk from what I'm seeing in front of me? And if that process is is sped up, then I think it really is a, you know, is a strong argument against the feeling that, you know, adding threat intelligence can can only be a hindrance. So let's move on and talk about how you apply threat intelligence to incident response. One of the things about incident response is it, it, time is, a, you know, a big factor here. Not only is incident response a, a, a critical process when it comes to working to respond to a breach and identify where it's come from and then do what needs to be done in order to remediate against the particular the particular threat. You know, that's the whole that's the whole process. Um, but actually, the, the time is absolutely uh, critical. In fact, Time insecurity generally is is everything, um, and the the risk is that the process becomes time consuming when there are a lot of manual processes involved with you know uncovering the the artifacts I guess is the word that would be used in the in the industry uncovering those artifacts that that need to be investigated in order to ascertain the nature the nature of a of a breach um, and actually the longer that that takes so you know the 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 window of risk uh, widens and that's really an area where 
um, you know, where again, where analysts are overwhelmed, where they're struggling to deal with the the demand, the effort required to research and respond to each incident, there is that increasing time lag between initial detection of the incident and the and the response. So again, by giving the analysts the insight that they they need. It can speed up the response time. And also it means that um, if you've got analysts who are, you know, perhaps at a, a lower level or a, a, you know, earlier in their career, it helps them to begin to learn how to use intelligence to effectively uh, research and, and respond to, to breaches. And that's a, a big deal, potentially, when we're facing the kinds of skills gap that we that we are for people in these roles. So really augmenting, you know, the, the personnel that you have with consumable intelligence can actually help to amp up their skills as well. So they become more proficient and access to that intelligence is giving them, you know, first of all, more experience of the, you know, the, the, the nature in which these attacks are happening, but also is enable them to, to upskill. And it really highlights that difference between raw information and intelligence. Yeah, so we know that obviously, you know, transforming raw data into information or intelligence, as you mentioned, is, you know, is the big challenge when it comes to threat intelligence anyway. What we have identified certainly is that what machines are very good at is the heavy lifting when it comes to collection of data from you know, varied sources, and also where it comes to actually, you know, transforming that that data into something that's useful for a human being, or can be ingested by by a machine. So actually, the the job is not to to remove the the human element. The the analysis of of some kind will always be needed. There will always be a requirement for the human being to do what a human being does best, which is to make a reasoned, rational decision based on the information that they have available. Uh, today, machines can't do that now depending on who you talk to there's a day coming when machines can but for now um, machines cannot do that so what we task the machines with doing is that is that heavy lifting the, the collection the initial analysis the structuring of unstructured data that can turn it into intelligence and that the, the big advantage there is that it then happens in in real time so it means that when an incident responder for example is looking for you know relevant intelligence to help them make a decision if there are changes that are happening around that intelligence, they will see that as and when they happen. Um, and so they they have two advantages. They have the advantage of the machine giving them lion's share of the information they need to make a decision. And they also have the speed in which the machine is able to work. And so when an incident does occur, it seems to me like you're putting your people in a position of being informed, of, of not feeling around in the dark for what might be happening, but uh, having having context. Yeah, and that has two prongs. You know, one prong is they can respond, you know, effectively, uh, more effectively to an incident. But the other prong actually is that they have initial visibility anyway, because they perhaps have a better view of, um, you know, trending threats or emerging threats that they wouldn't have had without this kind of information. Um, and they can then begin to narrow in on those trends and say, okay, show me the trends that are relevant to my industry or are particularly relevant to tech technologies that I use or are even relevant to, you know, peers in my industry. So it's definitely that those two prongs of, you know, I guess you could, we could call it prevention, you know, so kind of visibility of what's happening in terms of the threat landscape. And that will ultimately inform, a, you know, a, a way more efficient response if it's necessary when the time comes. And I guess uh, helps uh, stave off that feeling of panic. You know, we, we're, we've got this under control. We know what's going on. 
Yeah, there's that classic thing about, you know, you're, you're wandering uh, down the corridor towards the water cooler and the, the CISO or the CEO, you know, ask you about that particular threat from, you know, from that morning. Actually, although that may seem like a, you know, a reason, reasonably trivial and small thing, actually having a, a view of the threat landscape, having an, an idea of the, you know, the, the trends, understanding where attackers motive, not just their, you know, their, their methods, but also where their motivations are, you know, all help, that visibility all helps, as you say, to alleviate that feeling of, of panic when an incident needs to be responded to. So there's value there, too, for sure. Let's move on and talk about uh, applying threat intelligence to vulnerability management. What's your advice when it comes to this? So vulnerability management is obviously, you know, traditionally the the approach has been basically you have to patch. You have to find out what you need to patch and then you have to patch it. But actually, sometimes the, the, the key concerns are how much of a security risk does this really represent balanced with if I have to remediate something, you know, how what potential does that change have to affect my infrastructure? Is there a risk of me breaking something by, you know, by taking that remediation action? And so the way traditionally the approach is done is you scan your network to find systems that have that vulnerable software, and then you identify whether you think that it's worth patching those systems based on, inf- you know, the limited amount of information that you that you have available. So what threat intelligence applied to vulnerability management um, really intends to do is instead of focusing on remediating, say, the highest number of identified vulnerabilities, instead you want to really prioritize those vulnerabilities based on the greatest genuine security threat. Now, often the, um, the scores provided by the official sources, they don't take into account whether those vulnerabilities pose the, the, the greatest genuine security threat. And by genuine security threat, I mean, is that a zero day? Is that particular vulnerability a zero day? Or has that vulnerability been recently added to, you know, a well-known exploit kit that's, you know, rampant in the wild? And actually, the official um, sources for disclosing uh, vulnerabilities, like the National Vulnerability Database, they don't take into account the nature of a vulnerability. And also, we know that there's a lag between the reporting from those official sources versus references to those vulnerabilities appearing on, you know, all the other kinds of uh, threat data sources that that exist. In fact, uh, recent research that we did showed that 75% of all disclosed vulnerabilities appeared online somewhere else, so that is before the National Vulnerability Database, about seven times before they were listed there. And and again, if you go back to what I was saying about time, that becomes really quite a key concern. So we're saying that the, the method that we use for identifying whether vulnerabilities really pose a risk may not be quite as comprehensive as we would as we would like it to be. Um, and that's really where threat intelligence has a has a role to play, because if I'm able to see, for example, oh, this particular vulnerability has been mentioned, you know, um, in connection with an exploit on a dark web forum, you know, that changes my attitude to the nature of that vulnerability versus what I might be seeing in, you know, in the in the vulnerability database. Now, you can actually get a sense, uh, are, are the bad guys uh, gearing up to put this into use or have they already put it into use versus... Uh, this is just something that researchers in a lab have uh, discovered, and uh, we don't know if it's being put out there yet. 
And that's the difference, isn't it, between the kind of the technical version of the word exploitability and the real world definition of exploitability. So in the lab that you describe, you know, exploitability is how easy is it to use this vulnerability to do something on a system, whereas perhaps our real world understanding of exploitability is has somebody built, you know, code or, you know, or is sharing perhaps proof of concept code that shows this vulnerability being exploited. And actually, those two things are extremely different. But one of them, the first one that I describe, is what's used to measure the risk from a particular vulnerability, whereas what we would much rather do is measure risk based upon how likely it is, is this, that this thing is being exploited in the wild. Yeah, and, and given that uh, I would say it's fair to say that most organizations have limited resources, that it allows you to prioritize uh, how you're going to go about your patching and, and your um, your mitigation of these things based on how that risk would apply to you specifically. Absolutely. And I think also it does potentially move us away from this idea that patching is the only solution to this, you know, to this vulnerability problem. You may reach a point where if you felt that the risk factors were, you know, were were high enough, if the indicators of risk were high enough, that you may take a, you know, a more preventative remediation action than that. You know, we've seen examples where um, some companies and government organizations have made, for example, decisions to take down uh, websites based on unpatched vulnerabilities. They could see from threat intelligence that they had that that vulnerability was likely to be exploited. And so instead of waiting for the patch to arrive, they proactively remediated. Now, the argument might have been, you know, some time back, why, you know, why would you do that? You would never stop your, you know, you would never stop your business operations. But I think we are reaching a point where boards of businesses understand the potential impact that a breach, particularly of customer data, has. And so now they can use these risk factors to make reasoned decisions about how to respond. And sometimes that might be a patch, but other times it might be another form of remediation um, that perhaps is seen as being, uh, you know, balanced in in view of the risk. Now, speaking of boards, uh, let's talk about how do CISOs and leaders in an organization, how do they go about making the case to the powers that be that this is something that they should invest in? So obviously these are guys in, in organizations that have a um, you know, tremendous amount of responsibility. Their job is often to act as intermediaries, be- intermediaries between you know, security functions and, and the board. And actually that, that whole uh, role ultimately boils down to management of risk. Uh, you know, how can they uh, verify what what risk really is and then do a better job of managing that risk? Um, but of course, cyber risk in particular, uh, and maybe uniquely when compared with other kinds of risk that those CISOs might have to deal with, is not static. You know, it changes all the time. Um, it depends on the latest vulnerabilities. It depends on, you know, how threat actors may be changing either their their targets or um, or their methods. It could depend on the on the political landscape. It could depend on how the industry that that company in is in is viewed at that particular time. You know, that, that risk is a moving, morphing uh, thing. And that means that getting you know, timely and useful information about risk, whether that's posed by an emerging or an ongoing cyber threat or an emerging cyber threat, that's a massive challenge. And so that's where we really believe that threat intelligence 
you know, the ability to give that real-time picture of the latest threats, um, trending, you know, threats, particular events, um, and the context that's necessary to calculate the risk that that a business therefore potentially faces, you know, can can really make a, a big impact and can really actually also enable you you to communicate the potential of that impact to other business leaders or the board. Because I think we all recognise that that is where a, a challenge has come to you know CISOs in that particular role is communicating some of this more um you know more technical information uh, and boiling that down to you know what's the risk that we really face is a really really tough job um and i think they're also trying to do that whilst balancing you know the budget that they have with the most effective kinds of investments so while cso's have more money than they had there's a possibility that they still lag behind what's really what's really needed. And you can't buy everything. You can't buy every single security solution that there is out there. And that means that you need to choose what you're buying really wisely. And again, it seems to us that the only logical way to make investment decisions is to look at you know, risk. What is your organization's risk profile based not just on internal information that you have about, you know, your assets or the nature of your brand or whatever, um, but also based on, you know, the industry that you're in, uh, the country, and, and also looking at trends, looking at threat trends that relate, you know, that are directly relevant to your kind of organization, and then being able to justify those areas of investment, you know, that just becomes a much, much simpler process. Yeah, it strikes me that um, even if the the higher ups in a company at the board level may not understand all of the technical details, risk is something that they do understand. And to be able to contextualize that risk, that must be a that must be a powerful tool. Yeah, of course, because at the moment, if you aren't looking at it from the point of view of what's happening outside your organization, so that is using, you know, external intelligence to identify where risks really are, then it just becomes a bit of an inside job. I mean, using internal data has some value, but it will never give you all of the context to really build a comprehensive view. One of the uh, analogies that's used in the report is if you're not using you know, threat intelligence to if, uh, inform risk. It means you could be spending a fortune on bulletproof glass while threat actors are building a death ray. You just don't, there's just no <laughs> correlation between the attacks that you're likely to face versus the defenses that you've decided to put in place. It, w- it would be my argument that you can't solely rely on internal, um, you know, information about your company to, to give you that insight. You have to have some understanding of how you're potentially being targeted or how you're potentially being attacked or ha- or the breaches that your peers have experienced, for example. You know, to be using all of that information that's available to make those kinds of decisions. For that organization who is considering uh, going with some outside threat intelligence, getting started, maybe isn't sure how to do it, and and, uh, and maybe is a little concerned of taking on this new thing, what's your advice for them? The best place that you can begin is by defining where you think you will see, first of all, the biggest return on your, your investment, 
but also um, the biggest advantage to your to your security strategy. And I can give you a couple of examples of, of that. So let's say you're in a place where you're you're struggling with um, with managing uh, vulnerabilities. Um, you worry that you're opening your, yourself to to risk. You can get an immediate advantage from being able to contextualize the information that you have around those vulnerabilities. If that's an area where you think you can see an immediate advantage, then you should focus on that first, get that done effectively, and then look at the other places where you could put intelligence. One other area you know, would be in security operations. If you've already invested in a SIM, you've already made a significant investment in that. It's already heavily used inside your organization. There's already a whole process in place for the, you know, the triaging and the investigating of alerts. If you're already doing that, then adding, you know, contextualized external threat intelligence to that process will undoubtedly bring an advantage and it will undoubtedly streamline how that effort is working. So rather than stepping back and saying oh we need to implement a you know a threat intelligence capability let's try and do a little bit of all of these things instead of doing a little bit of all of them focus on doing one thing you know that brings a significant advantage first and then once you've you know seen the value in that it will naturally knock on to other areas of the business and i think the other really important thing is think about it holistically so if you're a security professional instead of thinking you know threat intelligence must exist as a separate you know silo of its own that's made up of threat intelligence analysts and all that kind of thing and don't misunderstand me that's great if you can make that investment and you can build that team that's kind of the holy grail but actually if you're you know looking to make improvements to your security threat intelligence can begin to be embedded in all of these roles that we've that we've discussed so make it a holistic thing you know involve all the people that need to be involved across a security program to really see the advantages that intelligence can bring our thanks to chris pace for joining us the report is titled busting threat intelligence myths a guide for security professionals you can find it on the recorded future website don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett, the show is produced by Pratt Street Media, with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.